Smashfly's total recruitment marketing platform and services proactively market an employer brand and jobs through every recruiting channel. It uses marketing automation technology and modern marketing practices. It empowers companies to attract the right people to their organization using the art and science of fit. It enables companies to generate leads and nurture relationships to hire faster and more cost-effectively. Smashfly's open API allows for integration with all major ATSs, job boards, and third-party recruiting tools. The platform can scale to meet the complex needs of global enterprise organizations. Visit blog.smashfly.com to get great content on recruitment marketing strategy and practices. Good morning and welcome to HR Examiner's Big Ideas radio show. Today we're going to be talking about technology, the law, and HR with Kate Bischoff. And hang on to your seats, I think you're in for some surprises here. Kate, why don't you take a moment and introduce yourself? Oh, I have a very squiggly line career, John, so that's kind of difficult. Um, I suffer from law degree. I am a lawyer. But in the middle of my legal career, I jumped ship and was an HR director or HR officer for the U.S. Department of State at the Consulate General in Jerusalem and then the U.S. Embassy in Zambia before returning home to the States and resuming my legal career. Now I have my own firm. I'm on my own. This is going to be month nine here pretty quick. Um, And I help clients figure out what are the best steps to be taking to make their organization better. And my clients are usually with small and medium-sized companies, companies with less than 5,000 employees. And they're looking at starting to get into technology. They're looking at making sure that their employees know what their policies are. They're looking at taking those policies and putting them in apps for employee smartphones and things like that. So I get to do a lot of super fun things on this edge of technology and human resources. You know, I I don't know that there are very many people listening or very many people in the world who would go, hmm, lawyer, technology, HR, (laughs) fun. That's that's quite... (laughs) There are few. That's quite a crooked line. Huh? It is. It is a crooked line. Um, I think it's... I have a lot of fun here, and there is a small cohort of attorneys that we get together every April, and we just nerd out about the technology that's impacting the workplace, and it's a great time. It's it's kind of like old home week for me because I get to see all of my buddies, and we just nerd out about this because it's, it's there's not very many opportunities for us to go, oh, my God, have you thought about what this is going to mean and what how the law is going to impact this? So there are a few of us, but we're not, we're few and far between. You can't find us easily. Well, so, so there's all kinds of ways of talking about technology. I'm, I'm sitting here looking at um, a career builder Harris poll survey just published, uh, oh, let's say five minutes ago that says 55% of um HR managers expect artificial intelligence to be a regular part of their work over the next five years, and one in 10 are already seeing evidence of artificial intelligence becoming a part of HR. Is is that what you're following? Yes, that's what I'm following. Um, and the thing that I love about HR people is that they, some of them are very, very excited about getting into this technology. 
And there's a little bit of it where I'm, I'm asking them to think of this like a car in the 1920s, 30s, and 40s. This technology is great. It's going to do absolutely fantastic things for them. Artificial intelligence is going to help us do great, great things. But right now, there is no airbag. There is no seatbelt in that car. And if you're going to start running with it, you are creating some danger for yourself and your organization. And so I would like it if HR people could take a step and say, okay, this is really great but are there some potential pitfalls? And then that's what I spend a lot of my time talking about with HR audiences is what of those potential pitfalls are and where can we tweak things to make things just a little bit easier for them. So let's dig a little deeper. Where are the potential pitfalls? Well, if we start with artificial intelligence and we're talking about, you know, trying to figure out who makes the best, candidate and we can use all of our historical performance data and all of the different buckets we have that create our data lake that we are launching the artificial intelligence into to find what makes the best candidate and then we're going to have them learn when they look out at the potential job market. There's a potential there for things like violations of Title VII and other anti-discrimination statutes. There's a potential for um, violations of the Fair Credit Fair Credit Reporting Act. There's privacy issues. There's data security issues in there. So there's there are lots of pitfalls in there if you don't look for them, and you can fall into them if you're not looking for them. And so where I'm trying to talk to HR people about is you need to know what's behind and in the, each one of those road bumps so that we can steer you clear of some of that, or we can knowingly know how we're going to attack it if we get attacked or if we get hit. So, so that's, a, that's the beginnings of a legal analysis. Do you think this stuff works? Totally believe this stuff works. Uh, I think, like, for example, the, the old example from several years ago with Xerox and their customer service people, when they found what factors made a great, a great customer service representative, and they were able to reduce their turnover by 20%. That is significant. I'm, so I'm not telling people you can't do this stuff. Because if you can have a legitimate return on investment, that's fantastic for you. I want to help you do that. There are just some risks that we need to figure out how to handle, and we can still get to that legitimate return on investment. We just need to make sure we're careful. So I, I promise my clients that I will never tell them they can't do this stuff. It's just how are we going to do it so we're, we reduce our risk just a little bit. So, so outside of the legal concerns, I, I have a concern that that um, because what algorithmic decision-making does is it mines the past to try to forecast the future. Um, mm-hmm. that, that, what, that what happens is you miss every single step of the way that is necessary to make a company agile. Um, and so, 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 so my concern is that, is that you end up with a system that actually hobbles you and gives you legal liability on top of that. Well, absolutely. I agree with you. Uh, I think that if we're looking at data, it's already 
old. It's already stale. I mean, even today's data for making a decision tomorrow is already going to be stale. And so if we're trying to be innovative, it might not be that we look at all of our historical data all the time. And I think you're right that, that some of that is a mistake. But also looking at the historical data, it has in it or baked in it, it has our bias, our our discrimination, discriminatory hires, whether or not we know about them or not, in that data. And so if we're trying to find the best sales team, and our sales team has always been white male for so long, there are proxies for white maleness that we're just going to perpetuate when we launch an algorithm to help us find the next sales guy. So there's the potential for creating this continual discriminatory piece on and on, unless we're making sure that humans stay in the process and balances on that. So, so I, I don't understand how you do that. Have you have you looked technically at at how you solve the problem? My sense is that um, it's not a prediction. It's not an assessment until it's an assessment, and if you interrupt it, you are interrupting the flow of historical data so it doesn't work right but my my take is this is a closed black box and you put something in one side you get something out the other side and when you get to something out the other side it's too late potentially right? yeah and you're suggesting that there's some technical way to interrupt that process my sense is that the processes work precisely because you can't interrupt them does that make sense as a question? Yeah, yeah, that does. Um, I think you're right that that I don't think I'm trying to say that there's a way to interrupt the process. I think what we need to do is we need to continue to validate and measure the process. And when I use the term validate, it's different for a data scientist than what an employment lawyer looks at. Validation for a data scientist is looking at the strengths of the correlations and the statistics to say whether or not this is meaningful. An employment lawyer is looking at this and saying, is this really a job necessity or a business necessity and job related? We're, we have a different terminology when we're looking at validating a piece. And this validation comes from what we call, I'm so sorry, it's got a horrible name, the Uniform Guidelines Employee Selection Program. Um, this, this validation is trying to tie it directly back to what our principles are under Title VII and other anti-discrimination laws. For the data scientists, they're looking at the strength of that correlation and saying, well, because this correlation is so strong, that must mean that this is job-related and a business necessity. And I think because we have a terminology difference, it, it creates kind of this conflict that we haven't been able to quite solve yet. And the only way we're going to solve it is probably litigation because we're not going to get any guidance from Congress, at least, and I know the EEOC is thinking about this, but we're going to have some conflict over this. The process itself, if we're, if we're, you know, putting in candidates and we're spitting out who the best candidate is out of this black box, I'm not suggesting that I, I as an attorney, can look at that black box and tell you where the technological differences are. I can't. I can't tell Python from R, from Hadoop, or whatever. I can't tell you any of that. But what I can look at is the measures of the individuals going in and the results coming out and whether or not those results 
mean that there is a disparate impact. And if I'm looking for those results and seeing a disparate impact, I'm going to be saying, okay, there might be a problem here. You vendor who's providing a black box, you're going to have to go back in and tell me what's happening in this box and tell me what's happening so that I can explain it to a juror if I ever have to explain this to a juror. So, so my sense is that that's not how it works. My, my, my <laughs> understanding is that you build an algorithm by you get some historical data, you, you add an algorithm that gets 70 or 80% of it right, and then you shim it until, until the output matches the input. Right? And by shim, I mean you add miscellaneous factors that are not historical factors. They're factors designed to cause the output to mirror the input. And so well, when you open the lid and you look at what's happening, nobody knows. And that's part of the problem, right? Because nobody knows. I, I'm, <clears throat> I guess my, my take on this, shim is that you cannot rely on a vendor to make employment decisions for you. And Title VII recognizes this. The, the liability all relies on the employer. And so if you're using a, a tool like an analytic, like AI, to help you make decisions, it can only help you make decisions. You, if you are just relying on what your tool says, the five-star candidate, you're making the human decision to rely on that piece. And what I'm asking my clients and HR professionals to do is to say, look at that five-star and see if it really is meaningful to you and whether or not this decision to follow that is the best decision for your organization, knowing that there's the potential for all of these other issues to pop up. So keeping it that human decision, even though you're relying on a tool, is important because that's where the liability comes up. So understanding that this is still your organization's decision, even if you rely on that vendor, is going to be important. Are you are you familiar with Stanley Milgram and the Stanford experiments about authority and decision making in the seventies? I'm sure you are. No, actually. I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, it, yes, you are. Yes, I'm yes, you are. This is. I am. This is the one where they they had the students hired. Um, to be proctors of an examination that involved using an electrical shock on the person on the other side. And, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yep. Right, and, and, and the student proctors were perfectly, almost uniformly willing to administer whatever shock the authority figure said was okay. Um, mm -hmm. this, is, this is the human being's um, inherent tendency to follow orders. Um, mm -hmm. and, and so you get from a machine, a five-star recommendation, uh, it, and, and it's unclear to me how you refute that and what the court of appeals is for that recommendation. I don't see, um, a lawyer running around saying, oh, you need to think harder about the recommendation that you, that you get from the machine being successful. Right. Oh because yeah, I'm not that people, successful. <laughs> you, you know, you know when I when I ask Google Maps how to get to the airport, and it says turn left, I really don't question it. I turn left. Mm -hmm. 
I turn mm-hmm. left. That's what when I get computer instructions for a task, I follow them. And, mm-hmm. and so and I, so so it seems to me that you're talking about something implicit in the product that is making the decision, but I, I get the sense that there isn't really any um good regulation that holds vendors accountable for that. You're absolutely right. There isn't a good regulation to hold accountable. There are legal theories that could hold these vendors accountable for this um, that I think some plaintiff lawyers are taking a look at. And I think they're very, very interesting in that, for example, some state anti-discrimination laws like mine in the great state of Minnesota has an aiding and abetting provision in it. So that if there is somebody who's aiding and abetting an organization to create discrimination, that individual could be held liable for aiding and abetting. And it's a unique legal theory in that Minnesota is one of the few states with this provision that allows you to sue both the supervisor who made the decision and the organization. And so extending that supervisor role to the vendor who helped create the discriminatory discriminatory decision, I think is a good way to kind of shake up this industry and say, you guys have to continue to say that you're only making recommendations or suggestions. Um, and then part of my job is to tell, to talk to my clients and say, hey, guys, you need to have some critical thinking skills here to look at this and see whether or not there's the potential that if you follow this, you're making a, a mistake. So like, for example, the vendors out there who look at you know, word choice and word complexity, eye contact and facial expressions for who makes a good candidate for a position. If somebody has Bell's palsy and half of their face is paralyzed, the potential for eye contact and those facial recognition to not, or facial movement to hurt them in the, the process, it are high. That, that could hurt your, your chances at getting a job. So if a, a human remains involved and the employer remains involved and saying, you know what, this individual needed a reasonable accommodation, we need to take these factors out because they have Bell's palsy or, or whatever, then the organization, the human piece of it remains making the better decision for the organization, whereas the tool would have said this person is awful. And so providing that critical thinking and analysis for the HR professional is going to be important here, but you're absolutely right. There's some legal theories that are going to potentially shake up the industry where federal law won't be able to do that. And I think the shakeup needs to happen. That's 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 interesting. I, I think what you're saying is that um, in order to effectively install some form of predictive analytics in the hiring process, let's say, I, I, there are many other places to do it, but in the hiring process, you have to go through at least a period, and, and perhaps forever, where you second-guess the machine. Right, and so mm-hmm. that means it'll never be a driverless car. It'll always be a car where you have to have your hands on the steering wheel in order to not have an accident. Um, um, is that what you're saying? A little bit. I think. I think right now we need to keep our hands on the steering wheel, and 
I think even in a driverless car, if I said, you know, I want to go to Target and I want you to go this way to Target, you're still directing the car where to drive. You're not making all of, the car's not making all of the decisions for you. It's still telling you, you're still telling it where you want to go. And so I think that's where we need to be right now is we've got this incredibly cool piece of technology that can really do great things for us, but we need to make sure that we keep the hands our hands on the wheel until the technology has advanced far enough where we know that discrimination, FICRA problems aren't, won't exist because we've tested it enough, we've been through enough to understand that we can weed part of these things out. So, so what happens a lot in, in hiring, I'm thinking now about how sales departments evolve over time. What happens a mm -hmm. lot in hiring is that we decide that the way we've been hiring is the problem and we come back and do it a different way. Right? So, so, so mm -hmm. the new sales manager is hired because the new sales manager has a different approach to sales and there's a bloodbath somewhere after the new sales manager gets to the new job and new people are brought on board. Have you seen yeah. anything about um, this this kind of predictive technology that's that agile that allows you to go, oh, you know what? The entire results stream we're getting out of this process is wrong and we need to shake it up. Have you seen anything I like that? I haven't seen that yet, but the potential really does exist. Some of these tools have both a you know, predictive as to who you should hire, but then you can measure whether or not the people you've hired have been the right hires for you and then go back and look. So there's this kind of this feedback loop that's in there. So the potential for that is certainly there. And I think that's a good thing. I think that feedback loop is going to be important. And so it could certainly exist. I haven't seen it or nobody's publicized it well enough um, yet but it certainly could exist. The other thing with this is, you know, you could have a problem with the tool itself and you could be saying, I'm going to use XYZ tool and then it doesn't seem to be working for you all that well and you go to a different tool. That would be amazing for an organization to have that many resources to be able to just switch up tools like that. But there's certain, certain ways that the tools could be different that you want to switch up your whole tool too. So the tools themselves are gonna to need to have to be agile as well, and at least allow some employer control as to what data points and correlations it's making. Oh, that's interesting. So you're imagining a world in which the vendors say, our predictive analytics skew this way and their predictive analytics skew that way. And so if you're having trouble what you want to do is use our special formula rather than their special mm -hmm. formula. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's that's going to be, come up. I mean, it's it's like the you know the retention. To, if we looked at retention tools, that somebody's going to define what it the best factors are for retention. One vendor is going to have different than the other vendor. A different vendor. It's a, or what vendor is going to determine how well employees are versus a different vendor. So each vendor is going to have to differentiate itself from another one based upon the 
whatever data points, whatever correlations, whatever weight it's giving particular factors. And I think that finding the right tool for your organization is then going to be asking those questions of, you're going to need to explain to me how this works and why your definition is better than the next vendor over. So, so one of the things I'm seeing that, that I'd love your opinion on, I'm seeing, for instance, in compensation data, there are now 20 viable sources of compensation data gathered from sort of myriad places for online job postings, crowdsourcing, okay. HR sources, and none of them agree with each other. And not only don't they agree with each other, but they don't agree with each other in a nonlinear way. So, so mm-hmm. one, one data point might be skewed to the left for vendor A and the next data point is skewed to the right for that same vendor. And, and so you, you, the only way that you could tell how to manage the variation is by looking at their entire data set. So I imagine that everybody will eventually be using multiple data set, multiple um, sources of compensation data because there is no longer a single source of truth. Nobody can get representative samples everywhere in their data. Um, so, mm-hmm. so you'll have to compare three or four. I wonder if you imagine the same thing happening in these algorithmic situations where it's not one vendor's assertion, but you have a committee of vendors who are making a recommendation against your data set. I think so. I think we're far away from that in that HR just doesn't have the resources to have more than one vendor if they're even able to get into this space. But yeah, if we're, you know, 10 years from now and we can, we can go to vendor A, B and C and see who tells me, you know, what, who is the most at risk employee in my organization and they're all a little bit different. That kind of committee helps us make better decisions, right? If if we have access to all of these different tools, then why wouldn't we want to use that? And I think that helps us then make better decisions for our organizations that are more defendable from my perspective. That's that's really interesting. That suggests, and, and it's something I've been trying to think about, that suggests that there's a coming moment where the the vendor doesn't provide data and interface. The the vendor just provides data about these issues, um, and somebody else or one of the vendors provides the interface, or the HR department provides the interface um, and absorbs data from multiple sources in order to make a decision that's that's a sort of midpoint between the recommendations of all of the sources. That's yeah, interesting. it's kind of like. It's kind of like mortgages, right? You might go for a, get the credit score from three different credit score vendors, and they're all just a little bit different. And then the mortgage company decides how, what the risk is based on those different scores from the different places. I can imagine that could happen in human resources, that we could have a variety of different sources saying X, Y, Z, and then we still, then we really do own the decision. We're not relying solely on one vendor when making that decision. Well, that's that's interesting. So that's a way for vendors to protect themselves from liability issues is to band together and have a stream of opinion rather than a single thread. Yeah, I think we're 
solid 10 years from now. But <laughs> yes, that, wouldn't well, that be well, great? You know, what, are, what are two really devastating um, legal cases uh, would hurry that up, I imagine? <laughs> yes. So, so when do you think this will be? This will be the last question. When do you think the first um, um, legal case in this area is going to pop its head up? Going to be soon, and I I can't give you a particular date, but I can tell you that I've been speaking with the EEOC. They've been on a couple of panels that I've been on recently, and they have a few charges of discrimination that involve an analytic tool that potentially could have disparate impact. Um, involved wrapped up in that actual charge of discrimination. So we're starting to see plaintiff groups. Um, there's a big one in New York that's been writing about this. There, there's the American Civil Liberties Union, who's very interested in analytics and how it plays both for women and for race. And so we're starting to see these groups pop up and be really concerned about this. We're starting to see more academic research in this area. Um, there's one professor at Washington University in St. Louis, Pauline Kim, who's written this great paper about how um, the legal framework could apply to this. And so if we're, if we're starting to see the plaintiffs get excited about this and trying to find the right legal theory, we're not that far away from having our first case. The problem with employment law is, is it's very bad at giving us guidance because 97% of cases settle before they get to trial and then very few cases get to a court of appeals where they can set precedents and tell us give us guidance for employers what they should do next so we may be a while away from litigation telling us what we should do but we're going to start seeing cases here pretty quick that are going to give us just a hint of what's to come and while the EEOC last October held a big meeting on this, the technology is moving so fast that to give guidance on this particular area, guidance today is not going to be applicable to the, to the technology even tomorrow. So it's hard for the agency to try to figure out what they're going to do. But because we're seeing so much activity around the plaintiffs, around um, IO psychologists, around academics, here, I think we're going to start seeing the cases soon. Fantastic. What a great conversation this has been. Thank you so much. Um, Thank you. Would, you. would you take a moment and reintroduce yourself and let people know how they might find you online? Are there resources? Do you write about this? Like that. So I have my company's website, thrivelawconsulting.com, all one word, Thrive Law Consulting. Um, and I do write about this. I talk a lot about technology in the different presentations I give. Um, and I do spend a lot of time worrying about what my clients are doing and trying to make sure that they continue to talk to me regularly. I buy a lot of lunches and donuts. So I, you hopefully you can find me there. I also write for recruiting daily, occasionally. So I shouldn't be that hard to find. All right. Thanks so much, Kate. And, and and is there a specific way people can get a hold of you? Uh, you can also find me on Twitter at, at K, the number eight, Bisha, Bish, B-I-S-C-H-H-R Law. Um, and I will, I tweet a lot about this particular area. Or you can just email me at kbischoff at thrivelawconsulting.com. 
Thanks so much, Kate. We've been talking with Kate Bischoff, who's a, um, a Minneapolis-based lawyer looking at the very bleeding edge of technology and HR. Um, thanks for taking the time to do the show, Kate. I really appreciate it. Thank you. You've been listening to HR Examiner's Big Ideas section. Thanks so much for tuning in, and we will talk to you next week. Bye-bye now. Mm-hmm.